one, and we are live. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Diverse Conversations with Ashka Patel. And today it is an absolute honor and a pleasure to host none other than Mr. Paul Day, uh, who is an executive director of the Pharmacist Defense Association. Um, this is uh, the Pharmacy Defense Association um, in the UK is the only independent trade union exclusively for pharmacists and the largest pharmacist membership organization in the UK. The PDA, or Pharmacist Defense Association Union, exists to represent, defend, and support the interests of members, either individually or collectively, in terms of their terms and conditions in dealing with employer, employees and or outside organizations. Uh, for many years, a small number of powerful organizations have influenced the direction of the pharmacy profession. The union seeks to address this imbalance and to act as an enabler for employees and locums to reassert their professional autonomy. So it is my great pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much for making the time to join us on this conversation today. Um, I cannot thank you enough because uh, the insights that you'll be providing us today will be so relevant um, as a topic of a pharmacy union um, has always been something of an interest, especially for our listeners here in Canada. Um, and, you know, to learn from somebody who is, um, you know, experiencing this day in and day out uh, will provide us with such incredible insights. I cannot look forward to our conversation. But before that, I would really appreciate if it gives a brief introduction about yourself and, you know, uh, just what you do at the PDA. Um, and, you know, uh, tell us a bit more about PDA. Sure. OK, so I'll start briefly with myself. Um, as you said, I'm the executive director. So, I, you know, I, I manage or, or lead the, the union re reporting to our chairman. Um, how I got involved in this sort of work, I'm not a pharmacist, mm -hmm. is um, I, I guess early in my career I was the sort of person where colleagues came to me and said, Paul, you know that issue that everyone is talking about and you know we're not happy, you're not scared of the management, will you go and have a word with the management and be our spokesperson? Um, and I worked in the head office of a retail bank here in the UK. Um, I did that. I was all right at doing it. Um, I ended up getting elected um, on my local region of my of my union, uh -huh. uh, on the national executive of the union, and then at one point became the uh, the national chairman of the union, where I then negotiated the pay um, for sort of thirty odd thousand banking workers. Uh, wow. as, as well as you know representing them that sort of thing and alongside that I've developed similar skills um, I'm like a counsellor in my local town and I've been involved in community groups um, quite a lot so with that combination uh, I eventually about sorry, about almost 20 years ago had the opportunity to stop doing that just as a a, a, a hobby I guess almost but you know aside to having a full-time job and actually got a full-time job in that not-for-profit sector so I'm kind of a leader of um of not-for-profit organizations particularly trade unions that's fantastic thank you so much for sharing that um and with that said um you know it's always um given the extensive experience you bring um you know just uh, from not-for-profit organizations but also you know kind of advocating for employees um and you know working with employers to you know establish better working conditions and be it what uh, whatever the concerns are of that matter um what ex uh, what exactly intrigues me and makes me curious is um, is the the pharmacist defense association in itself in, in terms of you know how did the association come into existence and like you know what is the story behind the formation of the union um, that was formed as part of the association yeah absolutely so 
you, you know, a few generations ago, as it still is in some European countries and elsewhere around the world, to run a pharmacy, you have to be a pharmacist. Right. And, you know, virtually every pharmacist is their own boss. So yes. you didn't need a trade union because what you needed was organisations which pharmacists, pharmacies rather, could work collectively for sure. But there wasn't a relationship between an employed pharmacist and an employee. Um, it just didn't exist. Today, however, um, most pharmacists are employed or locum, so, mm -hmm. you know, temporary doing contract work. Um, and so there was a gap where conditions had developed, but there wasn't anybody speaking for individual pharmacists. And how we were actually formed, um, and we're unusual as a trade union here in the UK because most unions are over 100 years old or at least can right. trace their history um, that far back. We're only 13 years old as a union. Um, and, and what happened was about uh, almost almost 20 years ago, in fact, mm -hmm. um, our chairman was, Mark, was on the, the board of the regulator in the okay. UK. And of course, they dealt with... Uh, issues of practice and, and discipline and what have you. And there was a tragic case uh, which involved the death of a baby where there was a dispensing error, oh, tragedy. Um, but it was clear from the circumstances that the employer held some liability because uh, there was a trainee pharmacist who shouldn't really have been in that branch. The, the supervising pharmacist had only qualified a year before. The circumstances weren't right. Mm -hmm. And yet the two individuals, the trainee and the, the newly qualified pharmacist, were taking the full responsibility in law for this tragedy. Mm -hmm. And the employer none, it appeared. Um, and so because of those circumstances, um, we looked at, or Mark looked at, developing a um, defence union, which is what the doctors have here. It may be called something else in Canada, I'm not sure. But on indemnity cases, to say right. if, there is, if there is an indemnity claim from a patient or from, you know, in the case of a death, the patient's family, um, who is protecting you? Because you can, you can rely on your employer's indemnity. Mm -hmm. um, but, it, but in the case I'm talking about, the employer's indemnity said, you two should take the blame because of course that indemnity organization worked for the employer. Right. Um, and uh, said, well, actually like the doctors have these medical defense unions, which are these indemnity organizations, they pay in, it creates a fund, it's insurance, it creates mm -hmm. a fund. And then if there is a claim, there's professionals to help defend the, the professional. Um, and sure enough, compensation can be paid if there was, was fault. Mm -hmm. um, but we're very aware that, you know, if the indemnifier gets to a point where if we argue this, it will be the employer's fault. But if we argue that, it will be your fault. Right. But the indemnifier works for the employer. They're never going to say it's that yes. way. So we did that and created that. But actually, very quickly, it became apparent that whilst that was a very helpful thing, uh -huh. most issues pharmacists had at work was actually down to their employment. And for many of them, this... Uh, friction between them as a clinical health professional trying to care for patients mm -hmm. and their employers who are private businesses trying to create profit for shareholders right and what the employers said was well you know under UK law you can come and help somebody with a disciplinary but only if you're a trade union and, and you're not a trade union 
So you can't come in. You can't represent mm. these people. So um, what Mark did was, Mark and colleagues did, was also create the PBA union. So we're kind of two organizations, we're technically two registered organizations, but we're one team. Right. Um, and so we have the union side and the defense association side. And, and in fact, if you are talking about a patient death here, yes. worst, case, worst case scenario, a pharmacist could find themselves in front of the coroner who wants mm -hmm. to know why someone's died. Fair enough. Um, on a disciplinary, because their employer could be saying, well, you've broken the rules, we're going to discipline you. The police could be in to say, this is a, a, an offence, you've, you've, you've killed someone under the Human, uh, Human Medicines Act. Um, on a fitness to practice in front of the regulator, who of course as an ultimate sanction could take away their right to practice and have the family on an indemnity claim. And we're able to cover all of those points for a pharmacist. So on all of those fronts, the PDA would help one of our members on, uh, defend themselves in that case. Oh, that's fantastic. And I think um, it's always great to understand because uh, it's unfortunate that, you know, it was a patient's um, death which led to the formation. Uh, but at the same time, I, like, uh, I think we all are firm believers in knowing that every incident teaches us something and, um, you know, that led to the formation and the creation of the Pharmacist Defense Association. Um, for an outsider like myself, um, you know, who's not very familiar with the UK regulation framework um, around the profession, um, you know, what would be the difference? Because you did allude to this a little earlier as well, that the Pharmacist Defense Association is itself an entity and then the union itself mm. is an entity, but they work together. So what are the differences and like where, where do they kind of work together? Like if you can just allude to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, although we have two registrations, um, you know, I'm sure the Disney Corporation is technically yes. multiple organizations. We're, we're one entity in people's minds. Um, uh, and basically, we have, uh, through the PDA, we have the relationship through with insurance mm. uh, brokers and through to the underwriters that provide the insurance side of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and through the trade union side, we're regulated uh, by the UK government regulator of trade unions, which gives us legal protection. It is in the UK, as in many countries, illegal to discriminate against someone because they're a trade union uh, right. representative similar to if you discriminated against someone because they're pregnant or because right. they're of their ethnicity or whatever. Um, so you've got that, you've got that status and the rights and responsibilities of being a trade union. Okay, fair enough. Um, and then my next question would be, um, so who's represented by the union? Um, like, you know, who gets to be a part of the union? Yeah, so in the UK, there's um, around 60,000 registered pharmacists now, population's 65 million-ish. Wow. But there's about 60,000 um, pharmacists. Um, but of course, some of those are owners. So, right. so that we don't have a conflict of interest, we wouldn't let someone who is an employer of other pharmacists uh -huh. be, be a member. And, and similarly, if you were a senior director, we of course have, you know, the largest employer of pharmacists here is, is Boots or Walgreens right. in, in a sort of North American context. Um, you, you know, if you were a senior director of Walgreens, but also a pharmacist, you wouldn't be able to join us. So we manage that conflict, but pretty much uh, most most employed or locum pharmacists, well, all, all locums, but uh, most employed and locum pharmacists could join us. We also take undergrads. So okay. once you've started your pharmacy course at university, master's degree course here, um, you can join us. Although our investment in the in the youth 
is that we let them join us for free. Right. Um, so as a as a four year master's uh, degree undergrad, and then as a one year as a trainee pharmacist, the membership is is free. Um, because you know those it's, it's interesting you know the the youngsters don't often perceive the sort of challenges they might find in the workplace because by definition most of them have never worked anywhere before exactly <laughs> exactly um and i guess uh, i'm not sure if um you know pharmacy technicians are a regulated profession uh within the uk or not but if um would, would they be considered or pharmacy support staff um you know that work in a pharmacy would they be uh, able to join the union yeah, so the so um, the UK has two regulators. Great Britain, which is Scotland, Wales, and England, has one, which is the General Pharmaceutical Council, uh -huh. and in Northern Ireland, um, it's the Pharma Pharmaceutical Society of Northern Ireland. The Britain does regulate uh, technicians. Northern Ireland does not regulate. Uh, technicians. Oh dear. <laughs> um, but but actually, we don't we don't take technicians. Again, you can cut a union. In many ways, you could say we were just the English pharmacists or just the community pharmacists, whatever. The way we've cut it is to say we are all pharmacists. So in okay. hospitals, in prisons, community, health boards, wherever anyone is practicing as a pharmacist, if you're employed or locum, you can join us mm -hmm. um, across the UK. But I mean, some of our members in Northern Ireland, for example, might also work in Ireland. Right. Which is, of course, a different country. And we don't cover them there. So our cut is anywhere in the UK, but pharmacist or studying to become a pharmacist. Pharmacist. OK, thank you for that. Um, and so what is usually the process for, you know, a pharmacist to join the union? Like, you know, what what, what do the membership costs look like um, to join the union? Yeah, OK. So um, to, to join, I mean, it's simply an online uh, application process um, it's an insurance claim so they have mm. to declare if um, they have any history because right. the underwriters need to be prepared to take them on risk um, so history of claims that sort of thing but of course most people are accepted because most people <laughs> don't have a worrying uh, history of, of, of claims um, so you sign up you join because of the insurance side it's the price is done on risk so if you're a community right. pharmacist it's less it's significantly less than um 200 pounds a year and in fact we also um this last year got agreement from uh the, the revenue here the tax people the government to say um because you need indemnity cover to practice you can get tax relief on it so for most uh pharmacists will be paying 40 percent tax on all their earnings excuse my cat um so you can reclaim a lot of that money anyway so that's okay. um, so that's uh, the cost. I mean, if you are the most high risk, uh, you know, independently uh, prescribing medicines, diagnosing, um, it could run to about fifteen hundred pounds a year. Okay. But because of our history, that's for the PDA side. Right. The union membership is technically free because right. we said we're adding that as a service. Should the insurance not be prepared to take you, which is rare but possible, uh -huh. um, or if for some reason you just, which I would miss, I would not understand why anyone would think like this, but if someone sort of said, oh no, I don't want the insurance side, uh, you can join the union direct for £240, which is a similar price for unions looking after professional people of, the, of our member sort of status. Okay, thank you very much for sharing that. And, and 
you know, like I think um, before I jump into the next phase of our conversation, um, like it's always great to wrap up my understanding and just making sure that I'm getting this right. Uh, but it, it seems like it's uh, it's incredible uh, the work and like you know just trying to bring this back home in terms of the landscape we have here for pharmacy uh, pharmacists especially. Uh, you know, so we we have an association which is you know advocating for pharmacists. Uh, we uh, we are uh, you know able to get our liability insurance from them or through any other insurer who's providing it. Um, so what it seems like is that the, the association and the union in the UK, they kind of work collaboratively to provide that one point stop for pharmacists to say, hey, here we are for you, um, as long as you are an employee and as long as yeah. you are locum um, and you do not have any business interest in any um, pharmacy establishments, then, you know, yeah. we are able to cover you. Got it. Thank you. And so with that said, um, you know, how does the union collaborate with other organizations, associations, unions, networks? Like I was re researching a bit before to prepare for our talk and I do um, have come to an understanding that there's quite a few trade unions um, in the UK, especially for healthcare providers, like, you know, the physicians and like other healthcare yeah. practitioners. So like, how does a union collaborate within pharmacy, outside of pharmacy to enhance the practice of pharmacy? Well, I mean, it's um, in terms of trade unions, you know, we, we collaborate uh, around the world as well as in the UK. And wow. uh, the, the world of trade unions, I say to colleagues that join us, it's not like, um, uh, you know, a brand of, of commercial interest says, oh, mm -hmm. how, you've done great commercials. Can you tell us who you use for your commercials? And then, you know, one of their competition, Pepsi and Coke, aren't going to phone each other and help each other. I mean, trade unions, we're all part of a, of a global family, really. So, you know, I'll take a call from, you know, a union in any other country and they'll take a call from me pretty much. So we're able to talk to people right around um, the globe. We're actually part mm. of a federation of European country oh. pharmacist trade unions, uh, and we collaborate on, on that. And, and through COVID, for example, mm -hmm. you know, we're able to have regular check-in calls where, you know, how is Croatia dealing with pharmacy in the, in the pandemic and in lockdown? How is France dealing with it? How is Austria dealing with it? And exchange uh, experiences and opinions. And so that's really, really helpful. I mean, it depends on topics. So, for example, um, I, I said, for example, technicians can't join our union, but we would yes. encourage them to join the appropriate union, which in this country would really be the shop workers union. Mm. So we and they, for example, have jointly worked on stopping abuse in, in retail establishments, you know, right. violence, uh, harassment, sort of bad behaviour by, by patients there. With the other healthcare unions, and you're right, there's a nurses union, a doctors union, a podiatrist union, a physiotherapist union, etc. Yes. Um, you know, we're all representing people in the NHS, the National Health Service here, mm -hmm. so we work collaborating on, on those things. But topic by topic, um, we form coalitions with, with all sorts of people. I mean, I mean, it's also interesting... As I say, I'm not from a pharmacy background, but I am from a trade union background. Mm -hmm. And one of the things which has been different for me working for my first healthcare union is, you know, every decision that we make starts from the place of what does it mean for the patient? Right. You know, when I worked for a banking union, we didn't not like, it wasn't that we didn't like customers or anything, but we didn't start from a place that said, well, yes. what does it mean for customers? But we start always from what does this mean for patients? So you know, we also work sometimes with patient organisations mm. because we've got, you know, we want 
Yeah, and don't get me wrong, there is nothing wrong with shareholders of companies wanting to make profit. That is the world we live in. And, you know, directors of companies are yes. duty bound to maximise profit for shareholders. Uh, you know, we're not trying to bring down capitalism or anything. Definitely. But, yeah, but, you know, but we uh, we put patients first. And so sometimes we're aligned with the patient organisations and not aligned with the employers of our members. That is very interesting. And, and with that in a chain of thought, um, I think it's, um, you know, would there be any achievements or highlights? I'm, I'm certain that there's, uh, there's many, especially during this pandemic, where we have all had to kind of think at the drop of the hat um, yeah. to, you know, change and um, make sure that our profession is um, and our professionals are well protected and, you know, um, have the tools and resources to serve our patients. Any achievements or highlights um, that you wish to share with the listeners today? Well, I mean, around the pandemic, I mean, it was one of the most intense periods of my working life. You know, our members were on the front line dealing with patients and yes. um, particularly for community pharmacies. And again, talking to colleagues around the world, you know, mm -hmm. even in the most strict of lockdowns. Right. Sources of food and sources of medicines had to stay open. Right. Yes, exactly. So hospitals cancelled. I mean, you know. On the one hand, hospitals were dealing with COVID patients, mm -hmm. you know, and yes. our members, as well as other health professionals, daily seeing people die. Horrific. Yes. Not dismissing that. But for other uh, treatment and other uh, procedures, they were able to sort of close down. Yes. To a degree. Um, and doctors' practices were able to reduce patient contacts and mm -hmm. sort of go virtually, whereas community pharmacies were, were open. Yes. And so we saw something like a 40 or 50 percent increase in volume. Wow. Patients arriving because they couldn't go to the doctors or exactly. the A&E. Everything was closed to them pretty much. Um, so, you know, the volume really there, violence and abuse became mm. massive. And um, we engaged um, around. So, again, not getting too technical around the UK, the, there's various like, police commissioners. OK. Are responsible. So we engaged the police commissioners and the police forces to, to say, you need to check on these pharmacies and make sure people are okay. Right. Because the volumes, and we got that on the national television as well, because members said, we surveyed members and they said, you know, it was something like, how often do you see an incident of abuse? Well, maybe every four weeks or something, you know, how mm. often do you see it at the minute? Oh, every day. It was that dramatic. Wow. But even at the very beginning, of course, the, the lockdown started, when, the, the, when we actually had proper lockdown, it was, you know, you, you shouldn't be out of your house. And yes. uh, for a lot of the community pharmacists, they were saying, well, I'm trying to go out and I'm getting stopped. Yes. And so we, we did an online thing for our members. We said, type in and you can download a, a, a printable PDF that says, I am a pharmacist. I am a key worker. Mm. You have to let me go. And we did that within about, it was something like 48 or 72 hours of the first lockdown. Members said, but we can't, we can't get out, you know? Right. So we did that. And again, with the vaccinations, when the vaccination started, the, um, the process was the government said, right, we want health workers to get priority vaccination. Good. Mm -hmm. So we'll say to you, community pharmacy employers, we'll say to all employers, NHS and community, give us a list of your employees and we'll get them on the list for vaccination. And of course, we said, well, hang on, what about the locums? Yes. So we created a portal on our website where locums could say, look, I'm a locum, I'm working on the front line, I need my vaccination. And then we pass that information onto their regional NHS, uh, their regional sort of health sector 
contact to get them their vaccination. So we do lots of practical stuff like that. Mm. It's not all negotiating for more pay and, and, you know, more benefits, that sort of stuff. We're very practical in our support because we're about improving the working lives, including practice, of our members. So, you know, whatever needs doing, we'll, we'll get involved in. For sure. And that sounds really great because, uh, and I, I think just something that I wish to share from like, you know, something that we faced, especially early on in the pandemic um, here in Canada, um, you know, so uh, there was a rush to, um, you know, kind of say essential healthcare workers or essential healthcare providers. Um, and like, you know, we would have our, our major grocery retailers that were open. So just like in UK here as well, it was mostly just grocery stores and you know, pharmacies that were open at one point during the pandemic. And, um, you know, there would be a thing saying essential healthcare workers would get a priority because they're working and all of that. But for some odd reason, pharmacists were never considered an essential healthcare worker. <laughs> um, so, you know, the association, um, at least in my province in Ontario, like, you know, they had to work to get that uh, established. There was a lot of grassroots movement from pharmacists. Um, and I think having that unified voice, that definitely helps, you know, bring that point home a lot more louder um, than, you know, just grassroots, grassroots efforts. Grassroots efforts are great because they get the conversation started, um, but to see it to come to fruition, I think um, obviously we need a more structured approach, which is where associations and unions come into play. With that said, um, you know, any challenges or concerns, um, like what kind of challenges or the concerns usually will the union address? So you did allude to some of them, like, you know, working conditions and for example, during the pandemic, like you, you mentioned about lo yeah. including locums into vaccination, like what are some other challenges or concerns that you'd be representing your members for? Well, well I mean, uh, uh, the crux of it um, is patient safety and, 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 right. and the, the ability to practice, uh, you know, fully. Um, and also, I think if we didn't exist, mm -hmm. there is a chance that, you know, decision makers, politicians and other decision makers would talk to Walgreens right. and think that was the voice of pharmacists. And, you know, Walgreens is the voice of Walgreens shareholders. Right. Um, you know, so we're making sure the voice of pharmacists on anything, um, mm. really. So we, we recently, well, recently now, I've lost track of time in this pandemic, a year and a half ago, we launched um, four equality networks. So we... Um, we prevented a hundred-year-old women's pharmacist association from folding. Wow! Brought that, brought that into our family, so we're now also the National Association of Women Pharmacists, and set up an LGBT network, mm -hmm. uh, a, 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 a Black, Asian, and minority ethnic pharmacist network, and uh, what we call the Ability Network for mm -hmm. disabled pharmacists. And so, you know, we're inputting into challenging for example the curriculum for the for the mm. students because you know the, the classic example is people saying every skin disorder I've ever seen has only been shown on white skin yes so how am I supposed to care for patients who are not white if I've never seen you know a, a condition on on, on non-white skin things like that right um, so you know those are sort of practical issues um for the regulator here there is a uh, you know fitness to practice if you are uh, alleged to have done something wrong in terms of practice, as I say. Mm -hmm. um, and statistically, basically, if you're white, you're more than you, you've got a higher chance of being a member of the panel making the judgment, yes. but less of a chance of being in front of the panel having had a complaint about you. Now, maybe the complaint thing is about the propensity 
for patients to complain <laughs> about people. Maybe right. there is sort of inherent structural racism yeah. in the behaviour of patients complaining. That, that's not the fault of the regulator, but but for the regulator at large, you know, they and they have worked, and we're trying to work with them to to help make sure that their panels are more representative of the, of the workforce. And you know, and I guess like in most um, places, pharmacy in the UK now is 66% women, mm, uh, whereas wow. obviously the pop population is about 51%, so there's an over-representation, and we're about 40% um, ethnic minority, so non-white, which, which is a big jump from where yes. we are kind of as a nation. Um, so, you know, we're trying to make sure that everybody, you know, old, old white men included, but, you know, make sure everyone gets an equal shout of, of things and that that representation takes place. But that's through the curriculum. I mean, some of the challenges are kind of workplace challenges yes. where people put targets ahead of what's realistic. You know, mm -hmm. people saying, I'm under huge stress, I can't cope, my mental health is suffering, and the manager's not, you know, uh, not listening. And in some of the larger corporations we deal with, but not just there, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, you're talking about people that are experienced in retail management come in and manage a pharmacist. They don't understand about healthcare. Yes. But, it, but even, you know, one of our biggest, our biggest payouts we got for one of our members was a, an, a pharmacist who was autistic mm -hmm. and had practiced for, I think, 20 odd years, got a new manager in a hospital trust, this wow. is a public employee, got a new manager who set targets that they knew that they would fail to meet because of their autism and basically set them up to fail. They lost their job. They ended up having to work as a porter in the same hospital. But three years later, with our support, uh, they won their case and the payment was the compensation, which was, you know, compensation for lost salary. Right. Over £200,000. Wow. But and obviously, like, you know, it's great in a sense that, you know, this um, this member of the union was able to um, get their due rights, um, especially if, you know, the, the the dismissal happened under the wrong circumstances. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's always uh, it's always important. Uh, I think it's always an intricate detail. And I, I'm certain that you can't um, like, you know, answer this in its entirety. But, you know, what are some matters or challenges that would um, that, let's say, if a member brings to the union but are not considered appropriate for the union? to represent or have you ever come across something like that <laughs> i mean yeah and, and, and the thing of having worked for trade unions for decades is if, if it can happen i've probably seen it yes um i mean you know we're not there are some places where people come to us for advice and we give them advice but we give them advice but we don't get involved right because you know it depends you might be unhappy Mm -hmm. with how your employer has dealt with you but it's not a kind of legal breach and it's not mm -hmm. so we'll give people counsel and advice and help them resolve it and and sometimes it is not obvious to others that we've been involved at all because you right. know it's in a private conversation we, we've, we've helped them sometimes people will write to their manager and say i've spoken to my union and therefore blah 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 and they'll get an answer that way because the mention of, of us yes but, but, you know, I mean, we don't cover every single, I'm trying to think in, in, in terms of issues or some man, some of our members will be managers and say to us, you know, I'm trying to do this. And we say, well, look, we're not providing you HR support. Exactly. You know, your HR support needs to come from the company, not from, right. not from us. 
But I mean, also prevention, you know, we often say as a pharmacist organization, we understand prevention is better than cure. Mm -hmm. And through our casework where we have, you know, reactively helped people where things go wrong, we're able as that voice, and we've got 32,000 members now, we're able to kind of proactively prevent things going wrong through information, through uh, lobbying, through talking to politicians and the regulator and the educators um, who sometimes don't realise that the, the pressure is there. Whatever, sure. that, whatever that pressure might be, you know, and we can be that... Um, the canary down the mine in, in that we see things going wrong earlier often right. than the regulator because we go hang on people are coming to us with this sort of query there's something up here and that, you know there's I mean there's currently all sorts of challenges um because you know regulation is having to catch up mm -hmm. with uh, technology yes and Great time. you know large internet-based pharmacies need to be regulated in the same way mm -hmm. um and you know as i say everything that we do starts with patient safety so you know we're con we're concerned our members are concerned that they are run safely so we've got those sorts of challenges that are happening that we'll get involved in we don't necessarily have to get involved in an individual case to to raise concerns um so yeah but i mean there's all sorts you know anything that can happen will happen if you're dealing with thirty thousand people for sure for sure and i mean uh, this is again like you know just uh Coming as a newbie to this whole, um, you know, idea of trade unions, it's, it's always a question that intrigues me. Um, and it's um, thank you so much for sharing that because I completely understand, like you know, that it's all it's very individualized as well because it really it really depends on the circumstances and you know what exactly is the background or the, the story behind the, the situation that's being presented to you. So I obviously, um, you know, it will be dependent on those factors. And I think um, you you have alluded to this as well, like you know, with the with the emerging of technology and like you know, especially like you know creeping into pharmacy sector and healthcare sector at large um you know we are that is an, i think that's a new age of pharmacy moving forward um you know how does the association and the union um you know foresee the profession um as we look to the future like you know what 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 are uh some challenges that you um that you're currently working on or that you can talk about yeah and, and so we have quite a, a, a an active policy department so you know the regulator and government are forever Consul, uh, consulting on new regulation or new practices uh, around pharmacy, around GP practice, around you know provision of of healthcare in general, and and we'll comment on those and you know be part of those conversations because mm -hmm. we're a major player in the world of, of pharmacy. Right. Um, now, in terms of how we see pharmacy, it has to be seen in the context that there is a a shortage of doctors yes. and there is a huge number of doctors uh, on the edge of retirement mm -hmm. so you know the country's health system needs to make more of pharmacy and you know we're clear that you know a community pharmacy is the most accessible part of the um the health system even if you're not registered with a doctor you can walk in without an appointment and see a, a clinical health professional mm -hmm. in the heart of your community <coughs> Now, some of the challenges, and again, I, I say we work globally. I was talking to an American pharmacist uh, last week. Some of the challenges are my employer is expecting me to run the dispensary and give vaccinations all day simultaneously. Can't really do that. I can't do it safely. Um, and, you know, we, we see a world where actually 
pharmacies should be invested in more by the government to make up, yes. it actually save them money, not just because prevention, but pharmacists are cheaper than doctors to employ. <laughs> um, you know, make more of the community pharmacy, drive more traffic to community pharmacists, where it used to be, where you would, you know, instinctively go to your pharmacist as a first port of call, <laughs> and there you should have access to not just medicines, but services and support also. Uh, you know, and in a world, you know, we we push for, you know, many of our community pharmacies is one pharmacist trying to juggle all that stuff. We'd see a world where actually you have one pharmacist safely dispensing medicines, dealing with queries, <clears throat> another pharmacist in that consultation room, de-prescribing, talking to medicine, you know, doing a medicines review, yes. um, you know, doing, you know, within their competency. I hate yes. to drag, we're not trying to make pharmacists into pretend doctors. Um, you, you know, doing within their competency um, con basic conditions and, and concerns of a patient and things like smoking cessation right. and, you know, obesity and all that sort of stuff, which helps with kind of population health and uh, public health health initiatives, mm -hmm. which saves the country money, keeps people at work, adding to the uh, gross domestic product to the country and, you know, makes the world a better place sort of thing. So we see pharmacists in that place of course, the big challenge is that some of the where we're dominated by large corporations that want to see pharmacy as a retail transaction mm. where, you know, people come in and say, and we did some surveying some years ago and said, when do you get frustrated with a doctor? Well, if, if he asks me to move on in less than 10 minutes because I want to tell him or her, you know, my condition. When do you get frustrated with a pharmacist? If it takes more than two minutes to hand me the box. Yes. What's the problem? What, they're just handing me a box. What's the problem? And of course, you know, part of the education we're doing yes. is saying, actually, this is a health professional making sure what's in the box doesn't kill you. And exactly. actually, you know, he's adding value. But where some larger corporations, particularly if they also own the wholesaler, mm. and so their profits are about shifting the most number of boxes overall, there is that conflict. And where they're trying to be a retailer and to, as I say, make the provision of medicines into a transaction rather than part of patient care. There is that challenge to that view. But, you know, that's why part of what we do is, is educate politicians yes. and decision makers and the public about the value of a pharmacist. But, but as I say, we're not just community pharmacy, also pharmacists in hospitals, you know, on COVID wards, in oncology, on oncology departments and everywhere else that they're practicing. Exactly, exactly. And, and it's critical, I think, uh, because, you know, we need to, um, as pharmacists, um, you know, as a pharmacist myself, like we need to step away from this whole um, image that has been created about a pharmacist being the pill pusher, right? Like you know, the, the yeah, typical yeah. picture that comes into mind when you talk of a pharmacist to the, uh, to the general public is somebody counting pills. And, and we have come so far away from that in, in terms of not just far away, but it's, it's more so like we have added on so many more scopes of practices um, yep. that allow us to, you know, contribute to our patient's health and well-being, um, but I think it just needs to translate into policy, which uh, I think the work that you're doing is incredible for that. And I think um, I'm just going to wrap up this interview with my one last question for you is, um, you know, how do you describe the future um, of pharmacy for pharmacists? Um, and, and again, it's a, it's a loaded question, but at the, at the same time, who better than you to ask this since your members are pharmacists and, um, you know, I, I'd love to hear your insights on that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think for the reasons I've just said, really, full of potential. If, you know, if, if the government right, makes the right decisions, because ultimately they fund what goes on, right? You know, mm -hmm. they control the high street. 
um, full of full of potential. And you know, the um, initial education training now is um, so the cohorts who are starting now will become pharmacists in five years. Will all be independently prescribing. Right. Um, you know, so you know the the opportunity to invest in the profession as a country and as a world is there. So there's there's real opportunity for for the profession to develop. Um, and here in the UK, there's been a, a push of recent years that you have more pharmacists working alongside general practitioners in the doctor surgeries as well, as well as being in the hospitals. That's really been a growth area, which has been more clinical. And you've got pharmacists more, um, spending more time with patients, interventions, as I say, you know, looking at medicines reviews, but, you know, helping patients get the most out of their medicines. So, I, you know, I think it's full of, it's full of potential. And from our point of view, we've already got about half of the profession in membership and we keep growing. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, if, you know, as we build our voice, the voice of pharmacists gets louder. Yes. And so there's the opportunity to make sure things end up well. Thank you so much, Paul. Uh, those were some great insights to wrap up this conversation because, um, you know, uh, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, I am also a firm believer that, um, you know, the practice of pharmacy and the profession um, for pharmacists, the future is very bright. It's very collaborative. Um, and I think we just need to be open to embracing new scopes of practices and being, mm -hmm. um, you know, able to advocate for ourselves and uh, making sure that we are part of associations um, who are able to support our voice and bring it to the forefront to politicians and lawmakers. Thank you so much for the incredible work you do. Uh, and thank you for sharing such great insights. I am certain that this is a great learning experience for all of us. Um, again, as I said, like in Canada, we do not have a union, but we do have associations. Um, and, you know, this is some, some, something definitely for us to ponder and think about and, um, you know, kind of see uh, where, where do we go next from here. So thank you so much for making the time. I know it's a little late on your UK time, but thank you for squeezing me in today. I appreciate it. That's right. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And thank you uh, to all viewers as well. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Um, and thank you once again, Paul. And thank you everyone for tuning in today. And with that, we're going to wrap up our conversation for today. Stay tuned for the next one. Bye-bye.